It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Some American politicians have been known to, well, not totally understand the internet. For example, who can forget when Republican Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska famously said this in 2006 while debating against net neutrality. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. Even our current president seems to rely on aging stereotypes of who and what a hacker is. Could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? That said, there are a few American politicians who know the internet. On this program, we've had Senator Ron Wyden as a guest. He, for all intents and purposes, is one of the biggest surveillance hawks in the history of the U.S. government. On issue after issue, too many of the leaders in the intelligence community have not just kept the Congress in the dark. The Congress has been given inaccurate statements and, in effect, been actively misled. But on this week's episode, we're going to be sitting down with Dutch EU Member of Parliament Mariette Schake. She's well known in the InfoSec community as a politician who knows the ropes of cybersecurity in a way that few of her colleagues do. In the past, Schake has been vehemently anti-surveillance and called on international laws governing the sale of cyber weapons, government spyware, and exploits. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So thanks for being here, Mariette. We generally wanted to talk about sort of the proliferation of spyware in terms of nation states and and how that sort of affected global politics and also human rights. But you recently wrote an op-ed about the regulation of government spyware. And I wanted to know why to you, being who you are and and, and in your position in, in government, why is this such an important issue for you? This has been a concern of mine for many, many years. And I've been pushing for changes in the EU laws to make it more controlled who gets to uh, buy these, you know, police-level hacking, tracking, tracing, and surveillance tools. After looking closely at what happened during the popular uprisings in North Africa and the Middle East and how they were cracked down. And very clearly, it was not only individuals, students, journalists, human rights defenders who were empowered by the use of technology and mobile phones and connecting and self-organizing and documenting human rights violations, but it was clearly also dictatorial regimes, military intelligence services, and their police that were using new technologies in ways uh, to repress. And the more I started following the thread of what technologies these exactly were, the more I traced them back to Europe and to democracies. And so I think it is uh, an unacceptable boomerang that has, has allowed to continue when you know, EU-made or US-made or Israeli-made technologies are sold to repressive regimes for clear violations of human rights. The technology that NSO Group has developed and sold or still selling to dictatorship states like Saudi Arabia is being used by these states in order to spy after activists for human rights, journalists like Jamal Khashoggi. So in many ways, you know, when we're talking about these, this, this specific marketplace, it very much reflects sort of this conventional weapons industry. And do you think, I mean, do you think the two are the same or or have a lot of similarities? Yeah, I think they have in the sense that you always have the risk that when uh, weapons or technologies are uh, procured for controlled, 
uh, rule of law anchored use, like for example, countering terrorism in a country like the Netherlands, you know, a country where the rule of law certainly protects people and where the thresholds for the use of very invasive technologies is high. But if there's then proliferation and, and the same technology turns up in, you know, a handful of other locations, then it spins out of control. And that is the same with many examples that we've seen in the, in the traditional weapon industry. And what's interesting is that I used to speak about digital arms, um, also to make it clear to my colleagues who may not be working on technology on a daily basis, you know, why this is a serious problem. And I got a lot of pushback, especially from uh, human rights groups who said, you're militarizing the internet, etc. But I actually think that the mechanisms of proliferation and the harms caused by these hacking and, and mass surveillance tools are actually very, very uh, comparable to the traditional arms industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it is difficult for people to understand that these, these tools really do enable militaristic acts in That's much right. the same way an AK-47 <laughs> helps fight wars. Well, it helps repression. You know, it gives more power to the kind of dictatorial human rights repressing regimes that are already so powerful that they can silence dissent. And now they can do it in a nearly invisible way. I mean, normally the world cries out when there's blood in the streets and when there's bullets fired and, you know, when tanks roll, uh, roll on, on public squares. But here, the, the silencing and the tracking and the dragging people out of their homes into torture chambers and prison cells happens nearly invisibly. And uh, it's, it's on top of that enabled by Western-made technologies. So uh, I, I think there could hardly be a clearer case for the need to really restrict this toxic trade. When you look at something like the Vossner Agreement, I'm, I'm hope I'm actually pronouncing yes. this correctly. Yeah. Do you th actually first off tell me what is the Vossner Agreement and how does how does it affect the spyware malware industry? So it is an agreement between a number of countries, including the U.S., a number of European countries, Russia. You know, it's a broad set of countries, in other words, um, that have agreed on certain lists that enter uh, into force when there's like an embargo. So it's basically a pre-selection of embargoed tools. And... Um, there are some technologies in the dual-use category on the Vassenaar list, but certainly not all, because uh, these, these lists are agreed once every couple of years. And, you know, I, I personally believe that European countries, the European Union, because it is uh, democratic and it has high human rights standards, should go much further than Vassenaar, because the Vassenaar arrangement is uh, originated in security concerns, and the concerns that I believe we need to have are also very clearly human rights concerns. So should there be something that's, that's more extensive in terms of governing the, the trade, the cyber weapons trade? Should Absolutely. there be an international agreement? Well, I mean, what we've done here in the European Parliament is already uh, gotten a majority behind what we believe the new EU standard should be. So that means, one, listing more technologies as needing to obtain a license before export. So you basically create a check before, you know, just allowing export to anyone who wants to uh, purchase these, these tools. And then secondly, you assess whether there's a human rights concern. 
uh, and we've suggested to do that on the basis of existing criteria, existing condemnations of human rights violations, so that it doesn't have to become overly politicized and complicated, but really, you know, when, when certain condemnations of violations have already happened, then it automatically means that you cannot just sell, uh, as a, let's say, Italian or French or a German company, these systems to the authorities in those countries. And what we've also done is recommended that there is much stricter control of the end user. Because there, there seems to be uh, a lot of leeway when you, for example, sell to the government of, of a country. You know, it, it may be on paper for countering terrorism, but it may in practice actually be to, um, uh, you know, find critical journalists, to track them, uh, to know where they are, to know who their networks are, their sources are, and then to use that information against them uh, to build a case, to torture them, to accuse them, etc., etc. So we need much more clarity also on who, who gets these technologies for what purpose. You take something like the hacking team example. You know, a few years ago, this was such a, a massive story in that yeah. we saw a company that was creating spyware and selling it to repressive regimes. The software allows for hacking team to basically infect people, uh, infect them in the sense of put a virus or malware on their computer, and then essentially have full access to the computer. They can do all sorts of things. They can download files from the computer, they can upload files to the computer, they can monitor all... Like, you're, like you say, these, these sorts of technologies are, are proliferating. Do you think that there is a hacking team in Europe right now that we don't even know about that is doing these types of oh, things, yeah. doing these types of deals? I would, I would bet a lot on that. I think that it's a completely intransparent market uh, that is now estimated at billions of euros of value. And a lot of these companies have no interest in, in having their reputation known. You know, they go to trade fairs, they, they deal in the darker corners of uh, states uh, with, with, you know, track records of, of very repressive um, actions against human rights defenders or dissidents or uh, opposition figures. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot we don't know yet. Uh, and um, uh, I think transparency has to be another element because what we've also seen, and you mentioned Hacking Team, which used to operate from Italy. There was also Aria SPA, another Italian-based company that, that sold to Syria, to the Assad regime when uh, the crackdowns on the popular uprisings were well known. And, uh, you know, it's not only the selling of technology, it's not like a box you ship from a distance. It often involves consulting, training, on-the-spot assistance in how these technologies should be used. So what we need besides uh, transparency on which companies are active on the market and selling what to which buyers, we also need much more um, accountability of the export controls authorities because perhaps it's a coincidence, perhaps it is because of good journalism in Italy, but perhaps it's not a coincidence that there are a lot of very active companies in the hacking and surveillance technologies in Italy and that there have been a number of incidents uncovered where they actually sold despite sanctions to countries that were not even uh, allowed to receive these technologies. So uh, the need for oversight and the need for transparency is very urgent on the part of companies but also on the part of governments. What do you make of something like NSO Group right now? That's, I mean, it's been in the news for multiple reasons. Yes. But how come this, this company has just been able to continue to behave in completely improper ways, and yet you have governments still buying their stuff? So on the one hand, the problem is that our laws are lagging behind. So even though you and I and many people hearing this might 
immediately agree that, you know, to have a journalist tracked and traced and later murdered with the help of these technologies is not a desirable outcome. It's also ironic, I think, that an Israeli company is providing Arab dictators, you know, their so-called uh, enemies, with, with their weapons of choice. Um, but the point is that even if we think it is, you know, unjust and fundamentally wrong, the laws do not forbid it now. So I think we need to step up the laws. I would have liked to see more European leadership. In the parliament, we've, we've spelled out how we think, you know, much better safeguards uh, should work, but the member state governments are very reluctant. And that may also explain why this uh, NSO group has been uh, getting so much space. I mean, I would be surprised if there aren't very good relations between the Israeli authorities and this company, because I'm sure they would have reined it in if they, if they would have had concerns. And um, I believe the company is now in, in the hands of European investors. So um, I think we, we need to ask them the tough questions, like what is going on? Are there no ethical benchmarks are there no limits to the cynical sales of these uh, tools that have that have clearly uh, led the way to the murder of a journalist forgive me for being pessimistic but it's also sort of this this feeling that you look at the top weapons dealing countries in the world and they're all some of the most respected democracies where people have socialized healthcare etc in their countries and yet you know something like sweden sells tons of weapons to different countries and the same sort of goes for how we've allowed this. Someone wants to make money off of cyber weapons or surveillance tools, and we're allowing it. Well, I think there's a couple of things uh, that, that we may uh, want to look at as well. It's one, that there's most likely, even though this is obviously not discussed on the front pages of, of uh, newspapers, but there's probably quite close relations between the intelligence services of some of these countries and these companies that may also enable you know, other use of their technologies once they're in the hands of foreign governments. Uh, I think that's an area to scrutinize more. I can't do that as a parliamentarian, um, but I think journalists might or uh, whistleblowers from these companies might. I think that's, that's something that might explain why governments are so reluctant. Um, so I think that that, that plus uh, simply market power, you know, not to, not to put barriers up um, against companies is still an argument that also broader business associations have used. You know, I, I spoke to a number of uh, business associations who were upset when we wanted to put stronger controls in place. And I said, look, we're dealing with a very specific niche. This does not, these measures do not impact, you know, the vast majority of of exports. Uh, it is just about standing for principles uh, and, and they should have meaning. And I fully agree that the same lack of responsibility on the part of democracies can be seen when it comes to conventional arms and when it comes to surveillance technologies that are, by the way, becoming faster, smaller and cheaper every This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Day. So you would say then you have this situation where intelligence agencies are working hand-in-hand -hand with some of these, these companies. 
to ostensibly sell surveillance tools to regimes that they're trying to back or they're trying to support? Well, I don't know the details of the relation. I think it deserves more uh, investigation. I don't think it is necessarily the ones they back. Maybe it's the ones they want information on. Um, I don't know exactly about the links and ties uh, because I, I just don't have the overview. A lot of this is, is anecdotal because we have no full transparency, which is a problem in and of itself. Um, but I do think it is curious that now the member states of the European Union are not moving ahead with putting stricter rules in place, even though there was a clear majority for it in the European Parliament. I worked with security researchers, you know, making sure that, for example, we would speak of exfiltration, so not, not to um, put up problems for pen testers or for, uh, you know, uh, good faith hackers that are trying to help improve the cybersecurity of, uh, of companies and, and institutions, but really to focus only on the illegitimate and unauthorized accessing of people's devices uh, and, and taking out uh, data unknown, for example, right? So we, we worked with civil society, with security experts, uh, across party lines, across nationalities to get, get to a better place. We suggest also uh, to delist encryption technologies and now that we're updating the export control uh, list. So I think it is really much more up to date, but the governments of the EU member states are not playing ball. So I really hope that more journalists will look at why, you know, countries like Sweden, Finland are, are um, not part of the majority that wants to see progress here. So you described a situation for yourself where you, you needed to get sort of support from the government and from the EU parliament, but there was sort of this misunderstanding with some of your colleagues who just fundamentally didn't understand the way that the internet works. I mean, you're leaving now the EU parliament, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm correct. Yes. Which is unfortunate because I think, you know, you have the InfoSec community and, and the, I mean, citizens of the world who really need politicians who understand the internet. Because right now, even to this day, in the United States, around the world, politicians still fundamentally don't really understand the internet. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I agree it's very important to bridge the gap between the worlds of technology and the worlds of politics, but it has to be a two-way street, right? A lot of technology experts honestly do not understand governance either. So uh, let's try to extend a hand both ways, and I will be committed to bridging that gap uh, in whatever else I, I will do next. And I'm confident that in the next uh, class of members of European Parliament, there will be more tech-savvy members of European Parliament included, because um, part of this is, is a natural element of, of a parliament. I mean, I don't know so much about agriculture, even though I do vote on it, you know, so you always have a division of labor. Um, and on the other hand, it, it might be a little bit of a generational issue too, that, you know, just to keep up with all the latest technologies, uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenge if you are further removed from their use or um, their invention. But I agree, it is very urgent um, to have the up-to-date knowledge before people start proposing uh, regulatory interventions. So here in the United States, there's definitely this war on whistleblowers that's been going on. Obviously, the Trump administration has, has gone after journalists. It's, it's it, in, in a way that, you know, both Obama and uh, George W. Bush didn't do, at least to the extent of it. Uh -huh. What do you think right now of the situation with Assange and how governments, it seems, are starting to criminalize not only journalism, but whistleblowing? 
Well, I think whistleblowers need to be protected. I believe uh, press freedom is one of our greatest goods in Europe. Uh, we have our own set of challenges, obviously, in countries like Hungary, um, Italy, you know, where uh, there is a lot of pressure. Um, Poland, uh, clearly, where the rule of law is under pressure. So um, I think we have to all be very vigilant to protect freedom of expression, uh, the press, uh, space for independent press also with the crowding out uh, of advertisements by the big tech platforms. So uh, yeah, the, the whole health of democracy and the credibility of democracy globally very much depends on uh, its well-being at home and, and we, have, we have work to do. So obviously you're on your way out uh, of, of government right now, but where do you see sort of nation state hacking and surveillance generally? Do you see this, th these, these issues getting better for the public or do you think we're kind of headed down a road that that is not so good well i've been consistently surprised at how little attention uh the the commercial market of surveillance tools and the use of these tools by governments and then the proliferation of these tools really actually gets so i'm very happy that you are uh, focusing on it in this in this podcast but i see a big paradox and and you know, hypocrisy between the outrage that I hear when another, you know, set of steps by the Chinese authorities vis-a-vis -vis minorities or in the use of facial recognition technology or AI is being reported. I mean, we're clearly worried about the buildup of a surveillance state in China. I'm worried about that too. But I don't understand why there's then not a link back to assess, hey, what are we doing here in Europe? And why is our market, you know, nearly unregulated, nearly unregulated? And I also believe that those two phenomena will come together because imagine, just imagine that other countries are going to um, be more innovative, catch up with the levels of technological uh, progress and will be market leaders soon. So let's say American, European, Israeli companies may lose their edge and will lag behind. And let's imagine that our markets are going to be flooded with commercial spyware that, you know, Chinese authorities are going to sell to criminal networks or uh, big corporations or uh, other non-state actors, who knows, right? I mean, we would then probably beat ourselves um, looking back why we did not put in place more control of this market in the first place, which would then give us a much stronger negotiating position internationally. It would make it much more credible if we would halt certain Chinese technologies, if we would have began to halt some of our own technologies. So one final question I have to ask, because obviously you're a member of EU Parliament and it's sort of the burning question surrounding the EU and the UK right now. How, how is Brexit going to affect the internet in Europe? Well, it very much depends on what the Brits are going to do at the end of the day, because um, clearly there's a large group of people in the UK that believes that the country can compete better on different standards and different criteria. So let's imagine that they would lower uh, data protection uh, and, and all kinds of data-related um, standards, right? If they would just do sort of a race to the bottom, then it can have an impact. But my sense is that, uh, contrary to all the political one-liners that you hear, that the you know, relation between uh, the British and European markets, the dependence, therefore, of the UK on EU standards is so uh, deep that it will actually be very difficult for them to simply uh, pick and choose and, and 
have other standards because they may gain some trade with, with uh, third countries, but they would lose compliance and alignment with the European market. So uh, I hope that the shock effect will be minimal. Um, but I could imagine that some cynical choices will be made, which would include lower standards. And, you know, perhaps they want to become uh, the hub for commercial spyware. Who knows? I have not heard that take before, that it's possible that Brits could be, <laughs> they could be the, the commercial spyware hub because of Brexit. Well, I don't know either. I hope not, of course. But you never know. I mean, something, uh, something will probably change if they want to have a new competitive edge. And there have been speculations. It also much depends on which governments uh, are going to be in power, um, you know, that they may lower the standards for data protection. And then uh, who knows what that would lead to. Right. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, and we will continue to look at uh, the commercial spyware industry around the world and it's unfortunate that you're leaving the EU Parliament, but I'm sure you're on to, to great things as well. Thank you very much, and uh, I enjoyed discussing this very important topic with you. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Today's episode was recorded by Dean White, edited by Dean White, produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai, and of course, hosted by me, Ben Maku. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.